Some of the most famous and stunning words in all the Bible were contained in one little sentence. A sentence spoken by the Lord Jesus on the cross to a repentant criminal dying next to him. The criminal had asked Jesus for mercy to remember him. And Jesus replied, as recorded in Luke twenty-two forty-three, Truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Now, completely aside from the amazing act of grace that God bestowed on this criminal to call him to salvation, quite literally moments before his death, that very simple sentence, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise, this is weighed down with important implications about the Christian's journey to heaven and about our arrival in heaven. Just briefly, from that one sentence, we learn that arrival in heaven is guaranteed by Christ himself. He says, truly, meaning amen, that's the original word, most assuredly. We also learn that our identities are retained in heaven. The criminal on the cross is the same man in heaven as he was on earth. We learn that the emphasis of heaven is being with Christ. Today you will be with me. We also learn, interestingly, that the trip to heaven is instantaneously. Today you will be with me in paradise. We learn that Jesus is concerned for our assurance and for our comfort. He says, truly, I say to you. But more toward what I'd like to talk to you about today, in that one sentence, one phrase, Jesus emphasizes that heaven will be about relationship. Given the shortness of the time on the cross, Jesus doesn't mention the glorious sights of heaven, the sounds. He doesn't mention the breathtaking throne room of God, the angels. He doesn't mention any of that. He mentions relationship, companionship, togetherness. And that's what I'd like to address today in our summer series. We've been going through biblical answers to difficult questions, and today I'd like to explore together what the Bible says about the question, what are relationships in heaven like? What are relationships in heaven like? And, and I, I should say this every once in a while, doing a topical series like this, I think it requires a solid relationship, a solid trust between shepherd and sheep. Generally, our practice is to go verse by verse through an exposition of a book of the Bible, but occasionally when we have to deal more pointedly with specific issues, we kind of have to go all over the place, and so we we get a wide-angle lens view from the Bible, so to speak, and so that's what we're doing this summer. This question, what are relationships in heaven like, this is a very important question. It's not just a, a passing fancy There's several reasons that it's important. First of all, it must be important because it's a question that gets asked frequently. I would put this in the top 10 questions I've ever been asked as a pastor in terms of frequency. The second reason this is important is it's important because it seems to be one area of understanding from Scripture that we tend to lack on more than others. Christians can go their entire lives with really more of a mythological understanding of heaven At best, a couple of vague notions about heaven. But in fact, Scripture is rich with information. We know infinitely more than, well, he's in a better place. We know so much more than that. 
But there's a third reason that this is important, and I, I think this will be an encouragement to you today. Our relationships on earth are littered with pain, hurt, and wounds, aren't they? And so we desperately need the eternal hope of heaven binding up these wounds, that there will be a day when relationship heartache is a dim memory, if even that at all. Now, before I have you turn to any scriptures, we need to set just kind of a basic theological foundation for the rest of our time together. I want to give you two quick basic theological facts about heaven so that we don't have to continually revisit these and explain them. The first basic theological fact is that heaven as it is now is the intermediate heaven. Heaven as it is now is the intermediate heaven. In his comfort of his disciples in John 14, Jesus explained that he was going away to his father's house and that he would take his disciples to be with him there. That is in the third heaven. This is the place that Jesus called paradise to the thief on the cross. It's the place that the Jew routinely understands as the third heaven, the real place beyond the first heaven, which is the sky, beyond the second heaven, which is the stars, a real place. But we would consider it intermediate heaven because Revelation tells us that in the final state someday, basically all of creation becomes heaven. The old earth and the old heavens, presumably the first and the second heaven as well, are melted down. They're refashioned now into the sinless ideal originally created or meant by God. And so God's final intention for redeemed mankind is not to ultimately live in a place called heaven apart from earth, but to live on new earth, which is part of all of heaven. If your view of heaven is of a few clouds and a harp here and there, it's way bigger than that. Now, that said, for our purposes today, when I refer to life in heaven, I am speaking of the intermediate heaven, heaven as it is now. But in reality, everything I'm going to say today applies also to the final state. And so we won't be precise today. I'm, I'm mostly getting you to think about relationships. So the first basic theological fact, heaven as it is now, is the intermediate heaven. The second basic theological fact, and I've already alluded to this briefly, but you will be who you are now. You will be who you are now. You aren't somehow all made into just generic worshipers. You will retain your identity. You'll retain your history. And in fact, even the redeemed, perfected, resurrected physical version of yourself. God told King Josiah in 2 Kings 22.20 concerning Josiah's own death, he said, I will gather you to your fathers. What does that mean? It means that identity stays intact, relationships stay intact, and gender stays intact. When King David's infant son died, he comforted himself in 2 Samuel 12.23 by saying, I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Meaning fathers and sons will be reunited. Again, identities remain intact. At the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17, Moses and Elijah appeared with Jesus, both still themselves. So two basic theological facts. Heaven as it is now is the intermediate heaven, but I'll refer to heaven this morning as kind of the totality of our experience in the next ages to come. And you will be who you are now. Now, with that basic foundation, I do want to have you turn with me now to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22, and we'll begin in verse 23. And this will be the first of a couple of texts we go to. I won't have time to take you to all of them we're going to look at. 
Matthew 22, beginning in verse 23. We're going to take the largest portion of our time here in this text because it concerns the most pressing questions about our relationship in, in heaven. What I'm going to do this morning is just organize our thoughts around seven pairs of related ideas. Seven pairs of related ideas. We'll spend the largest portion of our time on the first pair of ideas. First pair of ideas we'll call husbands and wives. Husbands and wives. That is historically the biggest question about our relationships in heaven. Matthew 22, verse 23. The same day, Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection and they asked him, that is Jesus, a question. Now, let's just give a little background here. The Sadducees consisted of a sect of Jews who believed that the only valid scriptures were the Torah, the Law of Moses, Genesis through Deuteronomy, and they might be what we would call today liberals. They didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't even believe in the eternal spirit of mankind, and they were just generally a bummer to be around. That's why we would call them liberals. They didn't believe anything that was really big and lofty. If I can see it, I believe it. Acts 23.8 outlines their belief system. Now, they were willing to argue theoretically about the existence of an afterlife. But here's what their argument would consist of. They would assume that if it turns out there is some sort of heaven, there is some sort of life after this life, if that was true then all it's going to be is a continuation of life on earth with a couple of more good things and a couple fewer bad things. It's just a continuation. And there are some areas of continuity we would agree with that, but they would say it was just basically moving on to the next stage. Now, since Jesus was speaking so freely of the kingdom of heaven, the Sadducees decided they wanted to challenge Jesus with this case of what some have called the most dangerous wife of all time, a woman who plowed through seven husbands who all die. So here's what they, they present to him. Verse 24, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. Now, to understand their question, we need to get a quick context in the law of Moses. You remember that the law of Moses to Israel is all about how they were to dwell in the land, the promised land, given to them by God. It was land deeded to them for all time. This land was to be divided by tribes, then further divided by clans, and then divided by families. And then these families were to divide the land even among their own sons. A family's land inheritance was everything. It was their heritage, it was their future, it was their legacy, it was the source of their income, both from crops and from livestock, and, and it will be in the future time proof that God's promises to Israel come true. The land promises in the Bible are huge. And so if a man died before he had a son, it could be as if he had never existed. He, he would be wiped off the face of the earth, his memory gone, his personal family line would cease to exist, and this had Massive repercussions. It would mean there was no one to inherit his land. 
and that his widow would have no means of support because support was through the land and through a woman's sons she was supported. And so God provided that if a man died with no son, his brother was obligated to take in the widow as his wife and to give her one son in his brother's name. I know that's something that we don't relate to here, but it was very key to the land promises to Israel. This law is explained in detail in Deuteronomy 25, 5, and 6. And in fact, the law goes on to say that a man who refused to do this, a man who refused to help his dead brother was to be publicly disgraced in the presence of all the village elders and his own family. His own family was then to be considered cursed by God. Now, keeping that law in mind, the Sadducees who believe that even if there was some sort of afterlife, It would have to be just basically a continuation of life on earth. They thought they came up with a perfect question with which to trick Jesus. And you notice that they don't just say a man and his brother. They go the seven brothers. They want to make sure this is as convoluted a situation as possible. And so they give this impossible situation. And in the white space between verse 28 and verse 29, you might imagine a a smirk and a smile because they knew they had him. Oh, but they didn't, because Jesus destroys them on multiple levels. Verse 29, but Jesus answered them, you are wrong. There's the first part of the answer. You are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. So immediately he doesn't respond to their trick question. He doesn't answer it because it's an illegitimate question. They had set up a false choice and he doesn't fall for it. Neither does he remove the tension of the set up scenarios immediately. Instead, what he does is he unmasks the fact that they're frauds, that they lack faith. They don't know the scriptures and they don't know the power of God, meaning they're unbelievers. And look what he does. Remember that the Sadducees only believe in the law of Moses, Genesis through Deuteronomy, that these were the only legitimate scriptures from God. And as such, they didn't find any evidence of a resurrection in those texts. Thus, they didn't believe in the resurrection. Now, Jesus could have said, well, there are other Old Testament texts. They would have said, no, we don't believe those. But but he could have gone to prove the resurrection to uh, Isaiah 26. He could have gone to Daniel 12. He could have gone to Job chapter 19. But he sticks to the scriptures that they believed, and he goes to one of their most beloved and cherished and revered texts, the story of God appearing to Moses in the burning bush In Exodus 3, where God officially gives his covenant name, I am, to Moses. The Sadducees knew the Torah. They knew Genesis through Deuteronomy. How many times had they quoted Exodus 3, 6? And yet they never stopped to think about one little idea, the verb tense. The majestic words, I am, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, right under their noses contain the truth that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were alive. That they were alive. That they were somewhere. 
that there is an afterlife. Little side note here, Jesus didn't take time to explain this, but in Exodus 3, God appears, and it says the angel of the Lord appears in a burning bush, not as a burning bush, but in the burning bush. The angel of the Lord, we know, is the pre-incarnate, pre-birth, pre-Bethlehem Jesus Christ. So Jesus could have said, remember when I was there, I said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. That would have blown their brain cells, though, so he just stuck to this, apparently. So he withers their argument with one verb tense. From a scripture text, the Sadducees themselves cherished, and he proves they don't know the scriptures. And Jesus said, neither do they know the power of God. They wrongly assumed that since they, they are like a typical liberal, they only go by what they can see. They have faith in nothing other than what they can see. And they wrongly assumed that if I can't see it, it must not exist. They assumed that this life was the best anything could be. But Jesus asserts that God's power is so magnificent that he's able to transform the believer to be like the angels. Not to be angels, that's a false cultural myth but to be like the angels. And by the way, a little side note, you notice that he jabs them again because they didn't believe in angels. And so he uses something they don't believe in to prove his point. So what is Jesus talking about here, about this angel-like life? Jesus speaks of the life to come with the phrase, in the resurrection. This isn't a reference to a specific event. Now, we know from 1 Thessalonians 4, the resurrection of the church-age saints, that's us. We know from Daniel 12, the resurrection of the Old Testament saints. We know from Revelation 20, the the resurrection of the tribulation-age martyrs. Rather than being precise about timing, he's, he's talking about the order of things to come. He uses the phrase, in the resurrection, to refer to the life and the glorified completion of the true believer in Christ. That life and the resurrection will have some continuity with our current life, as we've already said. But resurrection life is of a completely different order altogether. And that our best pattern to understand that order is the angels in heaven. Now, we don't know a lot about the angels, but here's what we do know relevant to Jesus' point. We do know that they don't live in families. They don't live in families, and I know that's difficult for us to comprehend because of our need for a family is so profound, and it's a need created by God. We also know that they don't reproduce, and they don't act in sexual ways. Again, that's difficult for us to comprehend because that's such an uh, inborn part of our lives as created by God. But Jesus says very plainly, in the resurrection, believers don't marry, and they're not given in marriage. We won't reproduce as resurrected believers, because only redeemed people will populate heaven. The Apostle Paul confirmed that there will not be marriage in heaven. 1 Corinthians 7, beginning in verse 29, he says, The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as if they had no dealings with it for the present form of this world is passing away what is paul saying he's saying that because of the shortness of time and and from paul's perspective we're always to be on the alert that christ could return at any moment 
But because of this shortness of time, we hang on loosely, listen carefully, we hang on loosely to the things of the earth that will not translate into the life to come. And he gives a list. Weeping, rejoicing over earthly temporary happiness, the possessions we accumulate on earth, none of those will follow us into eternity. And the first thing he lists is marriage. That that won't follow us as well. Now, it's right about here, of course, that we begin to get nervous or even fearful. And this is where some of you may be saying, I don't find this encouraging at all. This is where it's tempting and, and frankly, in the church, a common belief to think that somehow heaven without being married to my spouse will be less than heaven. And that's a, a logical assumption. So we have to back up for a moment. Why is marriage necessary now? Well, there's several reasons for marriage. First of all, marriage provides human companionship and help for a man. God said it is not good for man to be alone. And so marriage provides a lifetime of that companionship and that help. Marriage provides provision and protection and companionship for a woman. And so you have companionship and help. You have provision, protection, companionship as well. And marriage is the means by which humanity is to fulfill God's commission to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So marriage fills these good and godly functions. But in the resurrection, all of those things are taken care of. They're all done. You will never be alone. You will always have perfect companionship. You'll always be provided for. You'll have no need of protection any longer. The yearning for sexual union and the intimacy achieved there will no longer be necessary. And in fact, it'll be fulfilled in the perfection of closeness between all believers. And we'll see that more in a few minutes here. The Lord will have completed the work of multiplication. He will have completed the work of bringing into the kingdom of heaven everyone that he ordained before the foundation of the world. Every single one. The lack of sexuality or official marriage will not and cannot in any way diminish the bliss of heaven. It can't be. As if somehow everything else will be better except for my nagging doubts about marriage. And I would say that God understands this concern. I would say that this concern kind of makes sense. God built us to be one flesh with our spouses. We can't imagine life without them. We know them. They know us. We long for them. We, we cherish them. We don't feel we could live without them. And so, of course, we might be susceptible to the fear of losing touch with our spouses or having some sort of long-distance relationship, as, as if in the heavenly kingdom, uh, the one you used to be married to, you'll see her passing on the road, and you go, oh, hey, hey remember me? And... That just doesn't feel right. But remember, you will be in heaven who you are now, including your history. Moses and Elijah had never even met one another because they lived on earth 600 years apart. And yet we see them together with Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration. Relationships aren't driven apart. They're drawn together. You'll have no need of sexual intimacy. You'll have no need of the official union of marriage. And yet, why would you not spend vast quantities of time with the one who was your very best friend on this earth? Only now, without sin and without hurt and without argument. 
This is almost beyond our comprehension, which is probably the cause of some of our fear and trepidation. Let me, let me illustrate this for you. The Apostle Peter was married. On one occasion, Jesus even healed Peter's mother-in-law, and theologians have debated whether that was a help or not. That's just a theological debate that has raged for centuries. They were married for many decades. They were close. How do we know this? She followed him. She knowingly supported the dangerous gospel work that he was doing. 1 Corinthians 9, 5 indicates that Peter took his wife with him on his preaching journeys and on his missions. She sat through countless thousands of his sermons. She saw him leading the church of Jesus Christ, saw that he was consumed with this eternal work, and he, he dragged her all over the known world. The strong church tradition that most of us are familiar with says that Peter was crucified in Rome and he requested to be crucified upside down so as to never be seen as in the same category of the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Many of you know that story. Far fewer know the strong tradition that before his own death, he had to watch his beloved wife be crucified for her faith first. Now let me ask you a question. Would any of you Go running up to Peter and his earthly wife, quoting Matthew 22, saying, Get away from each other. If you saw them walking hand in hand, holding hands in heaven, only now, minus the stress of ministry and little things like martyrdom, none of us would begrudge that. It makes utter total sense. And I want you to remember this. Our resurrection life in every facet is going to be the infinitely elevated version of this life, better in every way. 1 Corinthians 15, 44, Paul says that we start our existence with a natural body, but in the resurrection, it's better. He says it's sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body, meaning a, a perfect physical body in every way, perfect in spirit, perfect physically. He reminds us in Philippians 3.21, Paul does, that Christ himself will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. The Apostle John encourages us in 1 John 3.1 and 2, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Do you honestly believe that if we have that level of elevated resurrection life, that there's going to be one aspect that just somehow didn't make the cut? Jesus has given us enough information that in the resurrection we'll be like the angels. We'll have a spiritual body perfected in sinless glory. We'll be transformed and that what we will be hasn't appeared yet. That we can't fathom how spectacular this is going to be. If your spouse has gone home before you, should you look forward to seeing him? Yes. And should you look forward to a blissful, beautiful, and perfect relationship? Yes. Do you realize that all the little nitpicky things on earth will be gone? You'll be able to enjoy each other so beautifully. 
That's husbands and wives. And I'm going to mention that dynamic a couple of more times. And in fact, we're going to come back to this situation of the seven most unfortunate brothers of all time. But now we're going to move a little faster. Second pair of related ideas. Second pair of related ideas, we'll call this one joy and reunion. Joy and reunion. I'm going to have you turn one more time uh, to another text, but after that, we'll just need to uh, mention a few places. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians 4. And I want you to keep this in mind as we're looking at this text that joy and reunion has to do with people you know, people you know well, those you've been closest to on this earth. Joy and reunion has to do with people you know, those you've been closest to on this earth. Keep that in the back of your mind. Now, in 1 Thessalonians 4, we see that the young church at Thessalonica had a concern that since they had come to saving faith, a number of their church members had died. Now, Paul had already taught them about the coming rapture of the church, the taking up into heaven, but they didn't have a clear understanding of what happened to believers who died before that, and this was a major concern for them. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have, who others do who have no hope, rather. What does it mean to grieve as those who have no hope? That's not difficult to figure out. If you have no hope at someone's death, it means you believe you will never see that person for all of eternity. That that is the end, the very, very end. And so Paul explains in verses 14 through 17 that there's a day coming that God already has those who have died and he's sending them back. Did you know that? Verse 14, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Did you see that? Through Jesus, God will bring with, them, bring with him those who have died. Toward what end? To be reunited with the resurrection version of their earthly bodies. Verse, the end of verse 16, the dead in Christ will rise first. And at the very same time, verse 17, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them. With whom? With those who have been returned to the earth by God, reunited with their resurrected bodies. We will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Now, verse 18, the last verse of chapter 4, only makes sense in the context of this great concern that the Thessalonians had, that they were forever separated from believers who had died. The ones that are closest to the concern of this eternal separation from their loved ones. But Paul, now having explained the rapture and the resurrection as a grand reunion event, Now, verse 18 makes sense when he says, Therefore, encourage one another with these words. What is the encouragement? The joy that you will have reunion with one another, those that you know. Now, to return once more to the husband-wife relationship, if Paul is giving this encouragement to the church at Thessalonica that they're going to be reunited with the believers in their local church It follows logically then, of course, that you'll be reunited with your earthly spouse. And some might have a concern. They they might 
feel that somehow my special relationship with my spouse won't be that special anymore. She's my very best friend. She has been for decades. Well, logically, if we're sinless in heaven and heaven provides perfect bliss and contentment, there's no reason to believe that that glorious unity won't continue. And yet with the added benefit of a deep and wondrous relationship with every believer. Yes, there is some continuity. And one of those continuities is that life on this earth now matters. What we do now resonates into eternity. We have clear examples of this. Rewards for eternally valuable deeds done here on earth are given in heaven. We've already seen that relationships continue. And in fact, Paul himself, he told the Thessalonian church, he said, you know what I'm looking forward to in heaven? One of the things I'm looking forward to is seeing you. Here's what he said, 1 Thessalonians 2.19. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? What is Paul saying? I'm not only looking forward to seeing you, I'm looking forward to pointing to you and saying, look at this church, aren't they amazing? Just because the institution of marriage ends except for Christ and his bride, that doesn't mean that somehow the relationship And deep, intimate friendship ends, joy and reunion. There's a third pair of related ideas. We'll call this one friendship and togetherness. Friendship and togetherness. In joy and reunion, we were considering the the coming joyful reunion with people that you've known well, those you were closest to. But what about those that you sort of knew, that you kind of knew? We're, We're familiar with this dynamic in multiple ways. We've had precious believers who come to Grace Bible Church for a time and maybe they're here for weeks or even months and for whatever reason, they're just as you're starting to enjoy that friendship, they're either transferred from work or they're taken away for some other reason. At the Steadfast Bible Conference, we enjoy the fellowship of many steady attendees who come year after year and yet we see them for a weekend. We get to say hello I have some dear friends that I went through the doctor ministry program at the Master Seminary together. And once a year at the Shepherds Conference, we have breakfast together for about 45 minutes. And that's it. As a pastor, I have the privilege of exchanging emails and texts with fellow pastors that I'll probably never meet on this earth. And yet, for a brief moment, we shared our common bond in Christ. In Romans 1.11, Paul expressed his deep longing to see the church at Rome, and yet he didn't know most of them personally. The church of Jesus Christ is a universal church. It means that, that we're not merely defined by one gathering in one place in one time period. Most of the church is in heaven already. You ever think about that? We're, we're in the minority here by still being here. The rest of the church is on earth consisting of the current believers in Christ as well as the future generations yet to come to saving faith. We love and we enjoy our local fellowship, and yet God has built in us a yearning for the church universal, a yearning to all be together. Augustine of Hippo, one of the most influential theologians of all time, really, very early in his writings, in the 4th century, was was convinced that the glory of God in heaven would be so overwhelming that all of our human relationships would be insignificant. They wouldn't be important. We would just be enamored with God. And that's a difficult argument to push back against because, of course, we want to be enamored by the glory of God. 
Fast forward a few decades after Augustine had lost brothers and sisters in Christ to death. He softened this stance and he celebrated the anticipated reunion. He said this, when we shall come to that life where they will be more than ever dear as they will be better known to us and where we shall love them without fear of parting. Heaven will be an inexhaustible supply of eternal friendships in which we enjoy togetherness. In fact, I want to prove this to you. I want to nail this home on the togetherness part. We've already seen from 1 Thessalonians that God promises that after the rapture resurrection event, we will always be with the Lord. Now, what does that obviously imply? If we're always with the Lord, it means we're always together, right? We're always with one another. Revelation 7 gives a scene in heaven after the resurrection and rapture of the church, but before the return of Christ to earth. Revelation 7 verse 9 says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So we're not only... Together, we're worshiping together. Revelation 19 pictures the resurrected saints of heaven preparing to return to the earth with Christ, so we'll be returning together to the millennial reign of Christ on earth. Revelation 20 speaks of the saints reigning with Christ for a thousand years, so we'll be serving together as well. After the reign of Christ for a thousand years, the Lord Jesus will judge all the unsaved dead from all the ages. The new heavens and the new earth will be created from the remnants of the old. And then the capper, Revelation 21, 9, then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the last seven plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, like clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates, 12 angels and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, three gates and on the west, three gates and the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the lamb. What a glorious scene. But does the angel speaking to John only show John the bride, the wife of the lamb? It's a mistake hermeneutically, to make New Jerusalem merely a symbol for the church, merely a a representation, a metaphor for the bride of Christ. The most obvious solution is that what John is seeing is the New Jerusalem, this massive, glorious city called the bride. Why? Because the people of God from all the ages are in New Jerusalem when it arrives on New Earth. We will experience New Jerusalem together. How about this one? Revelation 21 pictures the nations bringing their glory and their honor to New Jerusalem. We'll be traveling together. Psalm 16 verse 11 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. We'll be marveling at the pleasures of God together. 
I could go on and on and on, but I just wanted to give a short survey that we'll be together, we'll worship together, we're returning together, we're serving together, we're experiencing New Jerusalem together, we're traveling together, we're marveling at the pleasures of God together. I could ask you to raise your hand if you've ever felt lonely, and all of you would. That won't ever, ever happen again. Never again will you feel loneliness. Never again will you feel isolation And since the people of God will be perfected, neither will you experience the drama and the hurt and the pain associated with our human relationships. I could maybe have you picture it this way. I want you to picture the most beautiful, the most poignant, the most awe-inspiring, the sweetest moments of Christian fellowship. And that is just a taste of the complete and minute-by-minute experience of our friendship and togetherness in heaven. There's a fourth pair of related ideas. This one might surprise you, but we'll call this one heroes and villains. Heroes and villains. In joy and reunion, we were considering the glorious coming time with those people we know well on this earth, In friendship and togetherness, we consider the joy of the universal church being together, including people you sort of knew on this earth. Well, for heroes and villains, let's consider people you've never met. Those from other times, other eras. Let's start with the heroes. Men and women of faith from the pages of Scripture. Jesus made a stunning statement to guarantee that countless Gentiles, that's us, will be saved by their faith in Christ and brought into the kingdom of, of heaven. Here's his statement, Matthew eight eleven. He says, I tell you, many will come from east and west, that's us, and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Now, Jesus' point is that unsaved Jews who refuse to come to Christ as Messiah by faith in this finished work of redemption at the cross, they'll be thrown out of the kingdom while us poor Gentiles, the lowly ones who come to faith in Christ, will be included in the kingdom of heaven. But I want you to remember, it's a mistake to be overly quick to say that something in Scripture is symbolic only. That, for example, reclining at a banqueting table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is merely symbolic of being in the kingdom. You can't rule out something as being symbolic unless it's ludicrous in reality or an impossibility. We know in the Bible that, that, that God says that someday the trees of the field will clap their hands. That's ludicrous in a real sense. It's a symbol. It's clear. And so my question is, is sitting at a banqueting table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as a real event, is that actually possible? Of course it is. And in fact, it's not possible, it's definite, because Jesus said he's going to be there. When Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper in the upper room the night he was arrested, Luke twenty-two fourteen through 19 records that Jesus promised that he would once again sit at the table of fellowship with food and drink with his people in the coming kingdom. So will you sit at a table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Yes, you will. You will meet in fellowship with the patriarchs and with the prophets and with the apostles. I'm looking forward to meeting other heroes of the faith. I'm looking forward to meeting Perpetua, the female martyr for Jesus in the third century. I'm looking forward to meeting John Wycliffe, the first actively 
uh, the first to actively get the Bible into the hands of the English-speaking world. I stood in his pulpit once. I wanted to tell him, hey, I was where you were once. Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers. Oh, I want to meet him. He's been one of my probably top five most personal inspirations in the ministry. So you will meet the heroes. But can I tell you this? You're going to meet some of the villains too. Consider King Manasseh. King Manasseh was the last straw and the reason that God exiled Israel. He engaged in wickedness for over five decades. He rebuilt detestable sites for idol worship. He bowed down to the sun, the moon, and the stars. He sacrificed his own son in a fiery, fatal ritual. He consulted mediums and spiritists and those who looked to the dead for guidance. And like all tyrants, he killed his own people to such a degree that 2 Kings 21 says that the streets of Jerusalem were filled with blood. But God humbled Manasseh. He had him captured by the Assyrians in 2 Chronicles 33 records that Manasseh, the most wicked king in Israel's history, repented and was forgiven. We think about the Apostle Paul, the murderer of Christians and the greatest persecutor of the church in the early days of the church, saved by the will of God, by the grace of God, and you will meet him. Or we could think of an Irish terrorist named Kenny McClinton in the 1970s who was so violent that even in prison he was known as Maniac McClinton. While he was serving his 20-year sentence for murder, he began reading the Bible. He repented of his sins, and he announced through the prison bars to all of his followers in the prison that he was now a follower of Christ. And after his release, he earned three graduate degrees in theology and became an evangelist to the people of India for the rest of his life. You will meet the villains in heaven, the men and women who stand as a testimony of the grace of God. And might I dare say this, that's really all of us, isn't it? Here's a fifth pair of related ideas. We'll call this one advantages and benefits. Advantages and benefits. There's so many advantages and benefits to our relationships in heaven. I'm just going to suggest four that we don't currently enjoy to the fullest extent possible here. The first advantage and benefit, time, time. You will have time to listen to countless millions of stories multiplied by countless millions of believers, a few you know and most yet to become dear friends. I I don't know for certain, but do you know what I'm hoping that I never see again as long as I live in heaven? It's one of these. Don't you love when you're talking to somebody and they do the old, looking at their watch, because we're short on time. Husbands and wives, what, what do you constantly struggle with? We don't have enough time together. We have so many precious relationships with believers here in this church, and we never have enough time together. You have dinner with somebody, and you realize it's been eight months since we've even talked. But we'll have all the time in the world. Here's a second advantage and benefit. Purpose. Heaven has a purpose, and that is to serve the king of all the kings. First in worship and praise, and second in our service to him in his kingdom. First during the millennial reign of Christ, and then in the final state. And even now we know this. We know that serving together in the church is really the best means to grow in close relationship with others, isn't it? Because we're fulfilling a common mission. Here's a third advantage and benefit we'll call substance. Substance. This has been a problem in marriage for thousands of years. 
I don't know what to say. I've run out of things to talk about. Obviously, I'm speaking on behalf of all men. I don't know what to say right now. But because God is an infinite God, and since our learning of him and his delights and wonders will never cease, Psalm 1611, we will for all eternity have new and wondrous topics to experience together, to marvel together, and of course to talk about together. One more advantage and benefit, restoration. Restoration. Relationships on earth with fellow believers can be damaged. And and yes, we're called to total repentance. But total repentance in a sinful world and total forgiveness doesn't always completely erase the consequences of sin. Sometimes the consequences are still there. Yet in heaven, all relationships will be fully restored. Communion, total, fellowship complete in ways we never imagined on this earth. I wondered whether to address this or not, but I feel like I should. There's a sixth pair of related ideas. We'll call this holiness and justice. Holiness and justice. We should take just a moment to address this difficult topic. What about the possibility of knowing that a loved one missed heaven? Or because of missing heaven is experiencing the wrath of God in hell. Won't that ruin heaven for us? Well, we have to apply our theology to this issue. The judgment of God is a reflection of the perfect righteousness of God. And as perfected saints, we will completely concur with, we will completely agree with, we will be completely on board with the righteous indignation of God against those who ultimately rejected his offer of salvation. If I could put it in very, very difficult terms, the ones that we now call loved ones will not be the loved ones any longer. This is a hard truth, but it is a truth. Revelation 18.20, the people of heaven, that's us, are commanded to rejoice over the judgment of the wicked because the vindication of God shows his goodness. And in heaven, we won't have any more delusions that somehow fallen people can still be good without Christ. No more delusions. Now, I want you to keep this in mind. Every single person deserves hell. No one will be there who is undeserving. Matthew 7.13 says that almost all of humanity will perish because of their unbelief. This is so important. Your passionate allegiance to the holiness of God will be reflected in how you marvel at his perfect justice. You will obey Revelation 18.20. You will rejoice at the judgment of God. Keeping in mind, of course, the 2 Corinthians 1.3 that says that God is the God of all comfort. Keeping in mind that Revelation 21.4 promises that every tear will be wiped from your eyes and there will be no mourning, no crying, no pain. Let me give you one more pair of related ideas. Harmony and union. Harmony and union. What about that situation the Sadducees brought up to Jesus of the poor woman who plowed through seven brothers on this earth? The Sadducees argued that even if there was a resurrection, there would be no notable changes. But we've already shown, the scripture says otherwise, we've already seen in 1 Corinthians 15, 44, our very bodies will be elevated to spiritual bodies, physical and spiritual in perfect glorified harmony. We've already seen in 1 John 3, 1 and 2, that in all respects, we will be like Christ, sinless, perfected, glorious, eternal So let's return to the deadliest wife who ever lived. 
in this made-up story of the woman who single-handedly married to death seven brothers. Let's fill in the blanks, because the Sadducees left some things out. First of all, in this story, all of the actors in this drama are saved law abiders. They must be saved law abiders. All of them have a genuine internal faith in Yahweh. How do we know this? They're in the resurrection. They're there. In the law of inheritance, a dead brother still had rights. That if his father's land was deeded to be split seven ways, for example, maybe even with the eldest giving the double portion as was tradition. If the eldest, brother's, uh, eldest brother dies, he has no one to whom to pass his inheritance and his widow is left without an income. To marry your dead brother was a sacrifice because the son he produced from his dead brother's wife was not his son, but considered his brother's son. It was, it was a loss. It was a sacrifice. Now, I want you to imagine being brother number five or six. You're telling everybody you know, it was nice knowing you. It's been a good life. You're walking into a death trap, and yet you obeyed God. You see, if the Sadducees took this story to his logical conclusion, these are saved law-abiders. If they're all law-abiders as evidence of their genuine love and obedience to Yahweh, and if they're all in their resurrected states, then this former wife of each of them would doubtlessly be capable of loving them all and being the object of love of them all, not as husband and wife, but as fellow believers in Yahweh, a woman who clearly suffered in this life. She could not bear children and brothers who faithfully obeyed the law, even to their own deaths. So this very situation presents no problem whatsoever for a heavenly relationship of harmony and union. All of us have experienced the pain of loss or broken or damaged relationships, and yet so glorious will be our harmony and union in heaven that we will finally be able to say, oh, this is what the fellowship of the saints really is. It's a famous story, but it's worth retelling that Sir Thomas More, the Lord Chancellor of England under Henry VIII, was wrongly condemned to death. But he had one more opportunity to speak to his judges, the ones who condemned him to be executed. And right before his execution, he addressed his judges. And he said this, and eyewitnesses say he was smiling. As the blessed apostle St. Paul consented to the death of St. Stephen and kept their clothes of those that stoned him to death, and yet be they now both holy saints in heaven and shall continue their friends forever. So I verily trust and shall therefore write heartily pray that though your lordships have now here in earth been judges to my condemnation, we may yet hereafter in heaven merrily all meet together to our everlasting salvation. Those are some stunning last words, aren't they? I want to leave you with one other thought. Psalm 116 verse 15 says that precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. The Hebrew word translated precious here doesn't have the same connotation that we often use. Cute, adorable, or sweet. It's much bigger than that. It means valuable, weighty, important. 
You see, your death is important to the Lord. It's valuable. It means something to Him. Because you'll be in His presence and in His delights and with His people. How valuable, how weighty, how important, how precious is the death of the saints to the Lord. Hebrews 1 tells us that Jesus ascended into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. But never forget that when our brother Stephen was being martyred, he looked into heaven in his final moments before entering into heaven. He said, behold, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. That the Son of God stood to welcome his own home. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. I hope that you will be encouraged to look forward to a bliss and a joy in relationships like you cannot possibly imagine. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come to you now so thankful for a future hope that you've given us so much detail in the word. You've given us so many ways to be encouraged, Lord, and for that we give you thanks. We we are uplifted when we think about the joys of heaven. This life can be very painful. It can be so very difficult, Lord. And relationships would probably be near the top of that list. All of us have suffered loss in relationship. All of us have suffered hurt and pain. And probably all of us have caused hurt and pain. And yet we look forward to this day where we are together in perfect harmony and union, all because we are made like Christ, because we are with Christ. And the only reason we can be with Christ is because of his gracious, gracious work on the cross. And toward that end, Lord, we would come now soberly to the Lord's table. We would come now to remember the body and the blood of our dear Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray that you would bless this time, this high point of our worship, Lord, as we consider the cross. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.